Welcome to Yesterday Meets Today, Themes Throughout History. I'm Spencer Vollmer, your host and guide as we explore the themes connecting the histories of the distant and not-so-distant past with each other and also with our own more recent history. Together, we'll boldly venture out in pursuit of knowledge, always striving to learn new things about the past, the present, and maybe even a little bit about ourselves along the way. to have you back. So far for our Emerging Societies theme, we've brought Rome into the Republic and Japan to its first verifiable emperor. Unfortunately, I must start this episode with an apology. Last week I said the Aztecs and the Incas would be sharing today's episode, but it turns out the Aztecs just aren't that keen on sharing. So the Aztecs will get all of today. I do, however, have a new plan for the Incas. Since December has five Tuesdays instead of four, the new plan is to do the regular four episodes like I did this month, and then I'll upload a special episode covering the Incas as I originally planned to. I hope you'll enjoy the episode when it does get posted. Now to start today, let's talk about the Aztecs. They aren't the first society in the Mesoamerican region, which spans from central Mexico south through Belize, Guatemala, El Salvador, Honduras, Nicaragua, and northern Costa Rica. The area where the Aztecs built their empire stretched from the Gulf of Mexico to the Pacific Ocean at its peak. On a map, this is where the isthmus curves a little bit to the southeast. For a clearer picture, I've posted a map on the social media pages that highlights it. Now, before we talk about the Aztecs, we have to look at the Toltecs who came to the region before. They arrived in the region around the 8th century CE, migrating from the northwest. They settled at a location called Tula, around 31 miles northwest of what is now Mexico City, and utilized the Tula River to make up for a lack of rainfall. They created an irrigation system to facilitate the growth of their crops that included maize, peppers, tomatoes, beans, chilies, and cotton, a skillful adaptation to allow a settlement in an area that might otherwise have been uninhabitable. We'll be seeing something like this again later on. It's estimated that the Tula may have supported as many as 60,000 people with over 20,000 in the surrounding area, possibly reaching as high as another 60,000 depending on the source or perhaps the definition of the surrounding area. These numbers are estimated in around 950 to 1150 CE, which was the high point for this Toltec capital. The Toltecs were a militaristic society. They established and maintained a standing army large enough to go on campaigns in the region of central Mexico. So capable was this army and the area they controlled that Tula itself was not a heavily fortified city. This was due, at least in part, to a sense of respect their skill instilled in their neighbors. In response to nomadic peoples in the northwest attempting to invade, the Toltec army built a fortress northwest of Tula. Some archaeological evidence with similarities to the Maya in the southeast suggests they may have had interactions with the city of Chichen Itza, though the exact nature of these interactions isn't entirely clear. What we do see are similarities between the societies that are enough to raise multiple hypotheses with no clear answer, including similarities in the main plazas of the two cities. The Toltec state started to struggle in 1125 CE. The nomadic peoples from the north were making progress entering Toltec territory, despite the Toltec's best efforts. At the same time, the ethnic groups living in the Tula region began to fall into civil strife. Not a war, but a conflict between them enough to upset the balance in the city. By 1175, the Toltec state came to an end as a result of these two factors. 
Archaeological evidence suggests the fire destroyed most of the city around this time as well. Large numbers of people remained in the area, but by the end of the 12th century, the Toltec dominance was no more. An empire built over three centuries and then gone in less than one. Their fall leaves the opening for the Aztec Empire to emerge. Before we go on, I need to define who exactly the Aztecs were. Today, the term often refers to the Mexica people who established themselves in Tenochtitlan and were dominant in what became the Aztec Empire, so they are going to be the major focus. The term can also be used to refer to the cities Texcoco and Tlacopan, who formed the alliance to lead the Aztec Empire. From an ethnic standpoint, the Aztec peoples were made up of several ethnic groups, primarily those who spoke the Nahuatl language. The Mexica were among the previously mentioned nomadic peoples who came from the northwest. They arrived in the central Mexico region around the middle of the 13th century CE, not too long after the Toltec Empire fell. Also, as you may have guessed, this is where the name Mexico comes from. The Mexica appear to have had a bad habit of kidnapping women and trying to steal land, which contributed to them being driven away and continuing to wander to the southeast. The name Aztec is derived from the term Aztlan, which is considered to be home to their ancestors. Its location is unknown, if it even exists at all. So we're not entirely sure where they originated from beyond the northwest of Tula. They had an idea, though. That's right, it's time for a founding myth. The beliefs observed by the Aztecs included a pantheon of multiple gods. These included Mexica deities as well as some of the older Mesoamerican gods. Among the most important gods were, <laughs> let me say as I did last week that I'm going to do my very best with these names. Huitzilopochtli was the god of war and the sun. He'll be very important in the founding myth. Tlaloc, the god of rain, was also very important. These two seem principal above all others as they both had a temple atop the Templo Mayor Pyramid located in the very heart of Tenochtitlan. Another important god is Quetzalcoatl, the feathered serpent god. He is found in many Mesoamerican cultures and I'm tempted to refer to him as Quetz because it's much easier to say. Easier to type too. Take it from me. I wrote an essay on the guy in college. Typing that name over and over again? Can't recommend it. To my professor, if you're listening, Thank you for not making us do a presentation in that class. <sighs> I suppose I'll stick to the full name. This is what I signed up for, after all. Moving on and getting back on track. This pantheon had gods covering many, if not all, aspects of life. In addition to those mentioned, here are a few more. Tezcatlipoca, the god of the night sky. Totec, the god of spring and of agriculture. Xoquipili, the god of summertime and of flowers. Shutekutli, the god of fire, and Kuatliku, the earth goddess, Mictlantekuhitli, the god of the dead, and finally, Omituetl, the creator god. Hopefully those weren't too badly pronounced. <laughs> this is just to name a few gods and give you an idea of the types of deities the Aztecs and other Mesoamerican cultures worshipped. I should also mention that many of these gods have multiple aspects with which they are associated. I only gave you one or two here, but some of these gods have quite a few more. I could probably spend an entire episode talking about them. Perhaps one day I will. So, I mentioned that Huitzilopochtli is important in the founding myth. Before I tell you what he did, I just have to tell you how he was born. 
His mother was Kwatlikyu, not just the earth goddess, but also considered creator and destroyer, mother of gods and mortals, and represented as a strong symbol of duality. She wore a skirt of snakes, symbolizing fertility. Her face was two fanged serpents facing each other. Her breasts were flabby, indicated she had nourished many children. Her necklace was made up of a skull, hands, and hearts, symbolizing that she feeds on corpses, which is symbolic of how the earth consumes everything that dies. She's really quite a sight and full of symbolism. Now, the conception here is interesting. Coatlicue was said to have been impregnated while sleeping by a ball of hummingbird feathers, these feathers being representative of a warrior in Aztec culture. You may be surprised to learn that warriors were in fact believed to be reincarnated as hummingbirds. I know it surprised me. So a ball of hummingbird feathers contained the soul of a warrior, which the Pokli was then born on the Coatepec mountain near Tula. Poor guy was just born when his brothers and sister tried to kill him. His brothers were the stars of the southern sky and his sister, Koyolxakwi, was goddess of the moon. The attack failed and he killed them instead. The Aztecs believe that this battle happened every day, explaining the transitions of night and day as the two fought for control. Talk about a family with issues. Seems like mythology always has families fighting and sometimes killing each other. The thing about this mythology, though, is that there's more than one version. Because the Aztec culture internalized existing Mesoamerican gods, we are left with a mythology where one god can represent many aspects of life, and one aspect of life can be represented by many gods, and different stories exist for the same event, such as world creation, which we won't talk about today. So now that he's been born and killed his siblings, let's get back to Huitzilopochtli's role in bringing the Mexica to Tenochtitlan. For uncertain reasons, he is said to have instructed them to leave Aztlan at or around 1064 CE. Some versions of the myth I found say that he is the one who told them to take on the name Mexica, having called themselves Aztecs while living in Aztlan. Their journey to find this new home he spoke of took 270 years. In the year 1325 CE, they arrived at Lake Texcoco, where a familiar image signaled that they had arrived in the place Huitzilopochtli prophesied, an eagle perched on a cactus or a rock devouring a snake. Sound familiar? If not, take a look at Mexico's flag. All right, we finally made it to the founding of Tenochtitlan. The Mexica have arrived at Lake Texcoco, where their nomadic days come to an end. So let's move on from the mythological to the historical and get this emerging society, well, emerged. As you might imagine, starting a new capital city on an island in a marshy area of a lake isn't the easiest thing to do. But they made it work and demonstrated an innovative spirit as they did so. The first fairly obvious benefit of settling in this lake was the availability of fish and waterfowl all around them. They were able to gather food where they lived instead of going out to hunt and potentially leaving their new home more vulnerable to attack. Remember that the sources I found for this episode indicated that the Mexica tended to cause trouble wherever they went, so they would naturally be more aware of their vulnerable state now that they'd settled in one place. The local animals weren't the only benefit they were able to use. Their location allowed them to develop a new form of agriculture called chinampa. They would dredge the lake bed, pulling up rich and fertile soil, which they then fashioned into narrow rectangular islands. The soil allowed for such productivity, sometimes as many as seven harvests per year, that the technique is still used in the region today. 
On these fertile plots, they grew crops such as maize, beans, peppers, chilies, and others. To ensure a year-round harvest, they would tap water from the canals leading to the lake during the dry season, so their food needs were all covered without ever having to leave the lake. The third natural benefit the lake provided was defensive. The waters fully surrounded Tenochtitlan, which provided a level of protection on its own, almost like a wall, but natural and in the ground instead of above it. Mexico warriors completed this barrier by patrolling the three causeways that fed into the lake. With this, they were set to begin growing their capital city without the need to venture out for resources and with the ability to protect what they had. It wasn't long before the Mexica became strong enough to start conquering their neighbors. By the early 15th century, they were collecting tribute from their immediate neighbors, and by the middle of the century, the military elite who ruled Tenochtitlan began launching campaigns to expand the empire. Led by Itzcoatl from 1428 to 1440 and Montezuma I from 1440 to 1469, they claimed Oaxaca in the southwest, killing most of the citizens and placing their own colonists. Then they turned to the cities on the Gulf Coast for tribute and then those on the plateaus between Tenochtitlan and the Gulf. It was around this time that their alliance with the neighboring cities of Texcoco and Tlacopan formed, creating the alliance that would lead the Aztec Empire an alliance dominated by the Mexica. Together, they were able to rule about 12 million people and most of Mesoamerica. Only some of the more arid northwestern areas, you know, where all the troublemakers seem to come from, and some independent states resisting the empire remained free of Aztec rule. Once an area was conquered, they were given their tribute demands and left governance to the locals. They didn't leave military garrisons either. The reputation of their military might was enough to keep the peoples in line. Now that we've emerged into the empire, let's talk about what their life was like. We have a lot of evidence providing details from the time, so I can really give you a good picture of where the Aztecs were at in the 15th century and thus inside our theme. With the formation of the alliance, they were able to demand tribute from those subjected to their rule. Food, textiles, obsidian knives, and other manufactured goods were among the items demanded. At times, these demands were very oppressive. One source I found listed the following as a yearly tribute from Tochtepec on the Gulf Coast. 9,600 cloaks, 1,600 women's garments, 200 loads of cacao, I'm not sure how much was in a load, but it would have been a large amount, and 16,000 rubber balls. Now, if you're like me, the 16,000 rubber balls tribute stands out from the rest. I don't want to spend too very much time here, but the rubber balls, and indeed rubber itself, tie into a couple aspects of society, so they do merit some explanation. Mesoamericans who spoke the Nahuatl languages were actually the first to invent rubber balls prior to 1600 BCE. Can't say I've ever thought about it, but I never would have guessed they'd been around that long. One of the uses for these rubber balls was a ball game, which went through several versions in different Mesoamerican societies, including one that exists today. From what we know, the game utilized rubber balls of various sizes. More than just a game, though, it did have some ties to mythology, which the Pocli makes an appearance here, too. In this case, the game may have been seen as the battle of the sun against the moon goddess, Koyol Chakwi, and the 400 stars from the myth. In addition, the largest court in Tenochtitlan served as a host to some rituals including the sacrifice of four war captives as a way of honoring Huitzilopochtli. Religious purpose aside, this game was also played for fun with nobles being the primary players. 
The game took place outside in a large stone structure shaped like a capital I when viewed from above, though the shape wasn't as clear in earlier courts where the ends were open. The sides of the alley were typically sloped, but some courts did have vertical walls. A statistic I found says the height to width ratio of most courts was 4 to 1. The largest of the 1,300 courts discovered is 96.5 meters long by 30 meters wide, located at Chichen Itza. A much smaller court at Tico was only 16 meters by 5 meters. So the concept of the shape was relatively consistent over 2,700 years while the size varied. Generally speaking, a version called Hitball was the most commonly played version in these stone courts. Evidence suggests another version included the use of a stick to strike the ball. And there were one or two other versions that seem less common. It was played between two teams of two to four players. It seems there were often serious injuries to players due to the size and weight of the ball, which is assumed to have been around the size of a volleyball and weighed up to nine pounds. The two teams were confined on one side of the court and, in Aztec culture, had adopted the use of concrete rings on a vertical wall on each side of the court located at the midpoint. 16th century Aztec chronicler Motolinia states that points were gained if the ball hit the opposite end wall or went out of the court, and hitting the ball through the ring secured a decisive victory, though this was rare and most games would have been won on points alone. I mean, imagine hitting a 9-pound volleyball through a high ring using only your hit. Sounds like it hurts. And the basic game only involved a loincloth and sometimes leather hip guards. Some depictions of Aztec players show them wearing gloves, and ceremonial garments were worn for rituals. It's quite a game, don't you think? And an important part of Aztec society, both in the time we are discussing and beyond to the arrival of the Spaniards in the 16th century. The rubber balls did have other uses, too. To the Aztecs, as well as the Maya, rubber latex from a tree represented blood and semen. So, rubber was viewed as symbolic of fertility, and as a result, the balls would be burned as offerings, with other possibilities being burial or placement in a sacrificial pool. The sinkings and burials are where most of the intact rubber balls we have found have been discovered, and likely were never used as part of the ball game. So you can see why they would demand such high quantities, as balls serve two very different purposes, though the ritual and recreational did cross in those games which served as a religious purpose. Okay, back to the tribute offerings. All the items I listed previously didn't cover all the tribute items demanded from Tochtepec. The source indicates there are more items, but doesn't mention what those items were. This was a very intense level of tribute and would have been very difficult for these peoples to provide while also providing for themselves. Not all of these goods were kept within the empire. Some were sent with trusted merchants to trade for luxury goods outside the empire. Things like jade, jaguar skins, parrot feathers, and others that varied based on the location. The tropical areas provided vanilla bean and cacao which were used to make beverages as they are to this day. As for the social structure, the Mexica and therefore the empire were hierarchical. Males were seen as warriors and those of common birth could distinguish themselves in battle, thus improving their social standing. That said, the aristocracy received the most attention when it came to training the men to be warriors. Better training and more opportunities set them apart from the beginning. Accomplished warriors would receive land grants and some even received tributes from commoners. They helped select rulers, got better food, discussed public issues, and were the ones to fill vacant government positions. 
Even their clothes were better, with commoners wearing garments made of a material similar to burlap. Makes me itchy just thinking about it. Oh, and this was apparently by some sort of law. Even if a commoner got better clothes, it seems they weren't allowed to wear them. Meanwhile, the accomplished warriors were allowed to wear nicer clothes made of cotton. The source goes on to list these items that only warriors who captured enemies and brought them back to Tenochtitlan could wear, including brightly colored capes, lip plugs, and eagle feathers. I think we've just about driven the point home as much as we can. The Aztec Empire was hierarchical and militaristic, placing very heavy emphasis on men becoming accomplished warriors, which would of course be necessary in order to keep the subjected peoples in line without a constant military presence at each location. So that's men. What about women? They didn't have much of a role publicly, but they did wield some influence within their families. They couldn't inherit property or assume any public office. Additionally, Aztec law put them under a strict authority to males in the family, those males being fathers and husbands, but not sons. If their son was a warrior, they actually did get to enjoy honor as his mother, though I am admittedly uncertain as to what that honor did for the mother. While women were involved in the marketplace, their primary purpose in Aztec society was having babies. Interestingly, Aztec society held bearing a child equal to warriors capturing an enemy in battle. Those who died in childbirth were granted the same honor as warriors who died in battle. I think that's interesting to see that the same society that teaches women that their primary role in life is birthing and raising children, especially males, also holds them in very high regard as mothers. It's definitely not a common way of thinking based on what I've read on other societies so far, and after finding this information, I'm curious to find out how many other societies treated childbirth so highly, if any did. Though I'm pretty sure most women, and many, if not most men, would agree that being a mother requires the soul of a warrior. We know now that men who became distinguished warriors got to wield power, and childbearing was important as a warrior on the battlefield, just without the power to go with it. So who else was hanging around the empire? As with any empire, and really any society with a ruling elite, the majority of people living in the Aztec Empire were commoners who served as the cultivators of those chinampas we talked about when the Mexica first arrived. These people lived in groups called calpuli. These communities were groups of families that handled their own day-to-day -day life, which included who worked in the chinampas and how much land each family within the calpuli possessed. It's similar to how the subjected peoples were allowed to govern themselves as long as they paid their tribute and didn't try to turn on the empire. Naturally, the Kaupuli had to provide a portion of their harvest to the empire, and the rest they retained in warehouses or granaries. The Kaupuli didn't only work for themselves. They could also be used to work lands awarded to warriors and other aristocrats. Additionally, they were the ones to provide labor for public works projects such as roads, building palaces and temples, and establishing irrigation systems. Slavery is also found by this time, often comprised of the Mexica peoples. These would either be criminals forced into slavery, or young people sold by their families because they were in financial trouble. Regardless of where they originated, these slaves were typically domestic servants. They weren't sent out to work the fields, build temples, or other such work performed by the Calpuli. Now, I already mentioned that merchants existed in the society trading goods beyond the boundaries of the empire, but there's another point to make about them. They served as sources of intelligence on the lands they visited, providing the ruling elites with information on the political and military organization, yet for their usefulness, powerful warriors would extort them for wealth and goods unless they found themselves a powerful protector. 
kind of messed up when you think about it. They transport goods, provide valuable intelligence, and then end up being extorted. Alright, two more groups. First are the artisans. I really don't have too much to say about them. Those skilled with gold, silver, cotton, and other items valued by the ruling elite enjoyed a comfortable position in society. Pretty simple. Finally, we have the priests. This class sat among the ruling elite alongside the distinguished warriors. Naturally, they would be important in a society that places heavy emphasis on rituals. So important were these priests that they had powerful influence on the rulers of the empire, and a few managed to go on to become rulers themselves. This importance was derived from those previously mentioned rituals and their importance to the empire. In addition to reading and explaining omens, which alone gave them considerable power, they presided over religious ceremonies that were considered crucial to the survival of not just the Mexica and the Aztec Empire, but of the entire world. Ritual bloodletting was a part of Mesoamerican religious culture that the Mexica internalized and made a part of their empire. The blood was said to nourish the earth, allowing it to provide nutrients to the crops. This part wasn't a matter of death, though, only blood. Priests regularly performed acts of self-sacrifice, such as piercing their ears, or apparently even their penises, ouch, with cactus spines. Nope, no thanks. I think I'd rather risk my life in battle or break a hip with a nine-pound volleyball. Human sacrifice was also a crucial part of Aztec life, as I have touched on a few times before. While it was something the Aztecs inherited previous cultures, they placed a greater emphasis on it within the empire. Again, we find the influence of Huitzilopochtli. Early military success made the Mexica believe that they were favored by the god, and so human sacrifices were necessary to keep him happy and on their side. Some were Mexica criminals, others were sent as tributes, and others were pulled from captured enemy warriors. Regardless of who was sacrificed, it was not seen as a form of entertainment. It was an absolute necessity for the world to survive by sustaining the sun and the moisture in the earth, thus keeping the crops growing. And on that bloody note, we've reached the end of our episode. We established the Toltecs, got rid of them, used that opening to bring in the Mexica, followed Huitzilopochtli to the future side of Tenochtitlan, built the Aztec Empire, and explored the society as it emerged into the 15th century. I know it was a lot of detail, but we made it. And next week we have our first theme analysis and connections episode. I can't believe it's already here. It's going to be a bit different, which you'll see when we get there. But I'm excited. And I hope you're looking forward to it, too.